You may be seated for the reading of God's Word today found in Ephesians. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, called by Jesus, called through the power of the Holy Spirit to be one, to be the one body of Christ in the world, grace and peace are yours in the name of that same Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, Pastor Max kind of hit the nail on the head when he had this, uh, this foam finger, right? Tis the season for this, right? We're number one. Right? And this, uh, this kind of we're number one attitude can become really pervasive. Um, it finds its... its uh, it finds its way into all sorts of different aspects of our lives. Uh, and the danger of this, the danger of this we're number one kind of mentality is that, is that we really start to think that we are number one, right? And, and, and as dangerous as that becomes, that, or I'm sorry, that becomes very dangerous because it then becomes sort of a, a sense that the world is all about us, right? That the world is all about me, and so I have to be ahead and get ahead, right? A constant message that we hear, uh, it can be good, it can be bad in normal aspects of life, right? Uh, think about the ways that it, that it finds its, its way into life. In history and politics, um, we might call this exceptionalism, right? The idea that we're number one. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, before the D-Day invasion, the famous words that he gave to the troops, the charge he gave to the troops, I have full confidence in your courage and devotion to duty and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Right? What's the implication? We're number one. Right? We must win this. Right? That's the way it kind of looks throughout history. Uh, take another example, back to the sports thing. Right? In sports, we might call it winning drive. Right? It's that, that drive that some have that others don't that pushes them to achieve and to be better than others, to work harder, to do more. Right? Um, someone that we can, we can all agree on right? with a winning attitude, Larry Bird. Right? You guys are familiar with Larry Bird? Yeah, the hick from French Lick? Right? right. Indiana boy, right, who, who made his, his NBA fame in Boston. See, we can agree on Larry Bird. Right? And Larry Bird was notorious for outworking everyone on his own team and his opponents. That's why he was a lousy coach, because he couldn't understand why his players weren't working as hard as he did. In fact, one of my favorite Larry Bird anecdotes was especially, especially in opposing gyms, Bird used to dribble the floorboards of the gym. He used to dribble up and down the floor to find the soft spots on the floor. And anybody who's ever played will tell you the soft spots are the worst part of the floor because the ball doesn't bounce up the way that it's supposed to. Well, Bird would log that knowledge of where the soft spots were, and in the critical moments of the game, when their team needed the ball, he would force his opponent to one of those soft spots, knowing that the ball wasn't going to come up the way that he expected it to, and that he could steal it. It's genius, right? That's Larry Bird's winning drive. That's his, his drive to get ahead. This is what he said. A winner is someone who recognizes his God-given talents, works his tail off to develop them into skills, and uses these skills to accomplish his goals. One more example. In business, we call this getting ahead. Right? It's the ability to see things that others don't, to have a vision and a drive to achieve that vision that others don't. Use as an example, R.J. Hines, right, of, of ketchup fame. 
Right? And under his leadership, amazing thing hap- things happened in the ketchup industry. Little did you know that there was such a thing, right? Like, for example, the bottle where you hit the 57 and the ketchup always comes out if you hit the 57, right? That still blows my mind every time that it still works. Right? Some of you look at me like I'm crazy. You don't know about this? You hit the 57 on the bottle. Somebody said to me last night, they still put ketchup in bottles? Just squeeze thing. Okay, I get it. Yes, we use this. But if you ever have the 57 bottle, it's impressive. Heinz said this. He said, to do a common thing uncommonly well brings success. Those are just examples of this get-ahead drive, this drive to be number one. But as I said, the danger in the drive to be number one is in a failure to recognize that we're not. Right? We start to think that this world is all about me becoming number one, me getting ahead, me being better than everybody else. Now, now I want you to please hear my editorial right now. All right? I want to be very careful because this attitude is important in different aspects of life. It is important for us to succeed. It is important for us to excel. I don't want you walking out of here saying, well, the preacher this morning said that if I'm better than subpar, I'm unbiblical. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that sometimes that drive to be number one causes us to believe that we are number one. Sometimes that drive to be number one causes us to believe that this world is is truly all about me and about my success and to even push this book to say the same. But you see, this book, this Bible, wasn't written to give us sports principles or business principles or even historical and, and political principles. This book, this Bible, was written as the revelation of who God is. A revelation of who God is and of what he wants with us. It's a revelation about God, and as such, the Bible tells us very clearly who's number one. And it's not us. It's God. God alone who is number one. In fact, this is the way that Ephesians chapter 4 says it. It says that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul wasn't just, wasn't just being platitudinous by writing these things. It wasn't just flowery language to fill the page. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was a revelation of who God is, that God is over all and through all and in all. And each one of those distinctions matters. God is over all. This is probably the most obvious, right? After all, he is God. And so to understand and to know that he is king of kings and lord of lords, that that God is sovereign over all things, that God is almighty, well, that's pretty obvious. But if that's the most obvious, then I think the second one is the most comforting, that God is through all. Right? God is is through all. Just, Just sit on that a little bit this week. Allow that to to stir around in your minds. To know that God is through all. It means that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, it means no matter what difficult thing that you're enduring, it means no matter what brokenness you're having to go through, that God is through it. Whereas the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
And to know that our God is faithful and true. To know that our God is with us in the midst of all of this. To know that our God is blessing us even in the midst of the most challenging times is the, the acknowledgement that God is through all. Well, I, I said the first one's the most obvious. The second one's the most comforting. And I think the third one is the most confusing. That God is in all. You see, there are various religious systems that will teach that, that God is in all. But by saying that God is in all, what they mean is that, that God is, is everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. Right? That God is, is in all things. And so the blades of grass are my brothers and sisters. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that God is everywhere present, but he is locatable. The Bible tells us that God is in all, and yet he is personal and individual, that he is one God. And as one God, we will know him in all because we will see him through his works. We will see him through the things that he does. Listen to the way the psalmist David says it. This is Psalm, chapter, this is psalm 8. Excuse me. It goes like this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. By the way, I loved even the way this starts out. When I consider your heavens. You see, the heavens were the highest thing for an ancient to consider. Right? The, the vastness, the, the infinite nature of space. To see all of that. And he says, when I consider your heavens the work of just your fingers. When I consider this, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What's mankind that you're mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. You see, David was having an important moment. He was realizing that he wasn't number one. But he was realizing something critical about our revealed God. It's that he is number one. And, and as such, he still doesn't use his position to keep us down, but instead, he's mindful of us, that he cares for us, that this is what God does with his position of being over all and through all and in all, that our God is wonderful and amazing and surrounding us in his love. But we start to realize that God doesn't simply just dwell in his almightiness, but instead, he makes, sustains, and loves us. It means that you matter to God. You matter to the one who is number one. You matter to the one who is over all and through all and in all. How amazing is our God? But a, a famous writer, a man named Thomas Brown, said this, God only is. All others are something but by distinction. Right? That God doesn't need to compare himself to anything. But instead, God simply is. And to know that this almighty God is on, to know that this almighty God makes and sustains and loves us, how, how great is that? Right? How great is it to know this calling on our lives? And in order to sustain us through our walk in this difficult and broken world, our God does more. He calls us into one body by his one Holy Spirit. Right, That God would call us to be one body, a body of believers together. Why? So we can support and encourage one another. He calls us into his body, which is the church. It's a remarkable gift that he gives to us. To know that through this one body, by this one spirit, we are called to be brothers and sisters, one another, sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father, 
the third article of the Creed, which we just recited, it goes like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's what God has called us to. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It means we can't get to be part of this body by, by working harder or having a winning attitude. It's that God wants us here. God wants us in fellowship one with another and that there is one Christian church. There is one church, one body, not multiple bodies. And, and I think, to be real honest with you, I think that we need a reminder of this constantly. I think the church forgets this. We forget that there is one Christian church, right? Um, let me illustrate this for you for a second. We built this site over in Fishers, right? Cornerstone Fisher. You guys are familiar with this? Yeah? All right. Yeah, and, and we're not the only Carmel church that has done that, right? Northview has also put a site in Fishers, and Grace has also put a site in Fishers, and Trinity, which is just on the border, has also put a site in Eastern Fishers, right? There are a lot of churches doing this, and and so there's this kind of sense among people, I mean, well-intentioned people, that all of a sudden there's all this church competition, right? So some people have even said to me, hey, have you seen what your competition up the street is doing? And so being the smart aleck that I am, I, I've developed a response, which is, you, you know what Satan's doing in this community? Right, because that's our competition. It's not other Christians. It's not the Christian church on earth. We, we are not enemies one of another. In fact, on the contrary, there is one body by one spirit. Now, there are differences and distinctions, and they matter, and that's another sermon for another time. But it doesn't negate who we are as one body of Christ. The pastor of Northview Fishers is a man named John Smith. I'm not making that up. That's really his name. He's a good guy. And the second time that I met him, he, he blew my socks off because he, he told me, Hey, I drive by Cornerstone. I drive by almost every day. I'm way over to my church. And he said, so you know what I do every day when I drive by? It's a good reminder for me to pray for you guys. And I pray that God will do amazing things through you. What a reminder. A reminder that God calls us to be in fellowship one with another. And to recognize who the true enemy of the church is, to recognize that the enemy of the church, the adversary of the church, is Satan. That that which the church wars against is sin, death, and the power of the devil. Because here, within the church, are the gifts of God. That here, sin is overcome through the forgiveness of sins. That our enemy is not within, but instead that we are brothers and sisters, one body called by one spirit. And that as that Spirit calls us, He gives us His gifts so that we can be on this journey together. Trying to figure out what it means to, to negotiate and navigate our ways through a sinful world and through sinful lives. And to know we need all the encouragement that we can get. We are called to one body, by one Spirit, by the one God who is over all and through all, and in all of us. This is the way the Apostle Paul says it in Galatians chapter 3. You are all sons, that's sons and daughters. You are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
what that means? It means in baptism, you start to look a little bit more like Jesus. You start to be recognizable by what he does. And as a result, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is the wonderful way that God blesses us. Through one Lord Jesus, one faith, and one baptism. That this is the how the Holy Spirit does his work of gathering us into one body and one spirit. And then there's the last one that's in this passage. And you know what it is? It's hope. That we're called to one hope. To be people who have a different trust, a trust in a preferable future in spite of the evidence of the present because of the activity and the intervention of our one God. To know that God calls us to this one hope as he calls us forward to know the life everlasting, to know the resurrection of the flesh, to know that God will one day invite us into his presence and that there in his one presence we will rejoice with all brothers and sisters, seeing what God has done, rejoicing that there are no longer conflicts or divisions, rejoicing that sin has been vanquished once and for all and that Satan is an ultimately defeated enemy. And so no matter what happens around us, We have the privilege to know who God is. To know that he is is over all and through all and in all and calling you. And because your identity is in your God, because your identity is secure in who God has made you as his son and daughter, then you're free to be exceptional. You're free to live out your calling in the best way possible. You're free to excel because you know, you know the hope to which you've been called. And so brothers and sisters, this day and every day, as we rejoice in the gifts of God, as we rejoice in the love that surrounds us, we have the privilege and opportunity to say to our God, who is over all and through all and in all, you're number one. In the name of Jesus and for his glory, amen.